0: Hello everyone, thank you for joining with us for this week's podcast. And as per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community this week. Coming up on June 4th and 5th is Pentecost weekend, and historically that is a weekend of baptisms. So if you've been considering taking that step to get baptized, you can do just that by showing up. That weekend. We have everything that you need here, and Sam will be teaching on baptism that weekend as well. We hope to see you there. The best way that you can know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites you to bring all that you are and all that you're currently carrying to Him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
1: Well, welcome wherever you are and whoever you're gathered with. uh, We're so glad that you're joining us in this online liturgy and our high point of the time that we have together is going to lead us to this communion meal, which we'll be partaking together um, after we come to God's word. So if you have a a cup of juice or a cracker, you can get that ready. We'll be coming to the table uh, a little later. But I want to start with a question first and foremost, just to kind of get you thinking uh, during our time that we have together. And uh, if you were honest with yourself and you can only choose one, what would you choose? A religion that changes your actions or one that spares you the consequences of your actions? So you can only choose one, a religion that changes your actions or one that spares you from the consequences of your actions. So I just want you to kind of ponder that in the back of your mind as we walk through uh, what we're going to look at today. Now, like many people, I enjoy a good story. Uh, Apparently, millions of other people do as well because there's always there's millions of novels that are sold every year. Uh, There's millions of people who go and hear about stories at the movie theater Uh, Even Hollywood director Steven Spielberg uh, once said that however many special effects uh, a movie uses, it won't be a good movie if it doesn't have a good story. Stories have been an important method of communication for thousands of years. They engage our emotions, which is why they can encourage, uplift, excite, frighten, or even bring us to tears. And this is also what makes them a very effective teaching tool. Now it may surprise you to know that Jesus wasn't the only one who taught in parables. In fact, parables can be found in almost every culture, even going back to 2400 BC Buddhist and Chinese parables were widely known in ancient times. The ancient Greek and Romans had parables. So the genre would not be unfamiliar to the Gentile readers of the gospels. Aesop's fables, which come from Greece are even well known to this day. For example, uh, the hare and the tortoise, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. But parables were also a part of the Jewish tradition. There's parables in the Old Testaments and the rabbis also told parables. And probably the most famous parable in the Old Testament is the rich man and the ewe lamb, when Nathan confronts uh, David with his sin with Bathsheba in Second Samuel. But there's other parables. You have the parable of the vineyards in Isaiah 5. You have the parable of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and several others. So we can see that in teaching and parables, Jesus really is drawing from his people's traditions. And so we're in our teaching series that we've uh, called stories from God. And we're looking at these short stories from Jesus. and, And he shared how to understand this kingdom of God that was breaking into this world and, and this kingdom of God and to teach others um, how, to, how to be God's people in this world. And so today we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 19, uh, verse, or chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So if you have Bibles, you can turn there with me to Luke chapter 16. And I'm going to read it. Friends, this is the word of God. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who had feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now in reading this parable and talking with uh, people, I've, I've heard lots of people uh, say that this story is not, about the afterlife. You know, it's not about final judgment, eternal damnation, or heavenly reward. The concept of Lazarus resting comfortably in paradise and the rich man frying in hell are merely folklore or metaphor. You know, the parable cannot be about life after death. It's too otherworldly, superstitious, or inconsistent. However, others will then also say, this is not really a story about economics. Surely, Jesus is not saying that wealth in and of itself is bad and that poverty is good. The parable cannot be about changing the economic system, whether in the first century or even in the 21st century. The The idea is too earthly. But what if the parable does say something about the afterlife? Which is what the church fathers thought and probably what the majority of the original listeners of the parable who did believe in a just God who resurrected the dead and proclaimed a final judgment thought as well. And what if we took seriously Jesus's own concern for how people related to each other or how they might live if they already had one foot in the kingdom of heaven? And what if the parable does say something about economic status, which was a major concern for both the scripture of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth? And that's most likely how people in Jesus' audience would have heard it. So maybe we should do the work even today to hear it as they would have heard it. Now Luke, the author of this gospel, more than any of the other evangelists, he addresses the topic of riches and the use of possessions in relationship to discipleship more than any others. He's always connecting the two. Uh, From Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke 6, It begins with, blessed are those who are poor and woe to those who are rich. And then he goes on to tell three vivid parables about rich men, all unique to Luke. One's in chapter 12, and then we find two of them here in chapter 16, to make clear the danger of riches and how a person cannot serve both God and money. And I love how Karen Hatcher puts it when she says this, The Lucan narrative is laced with caveats against the lure of lucre. I love that. The lure of lucre. Our parable today is told in the context of a discussion regarding wealth and Torah. And Torah simply means teaching or law. It's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so having overheard Jesus' conversation with his disciples, some Pharisees, described by the narrator as as lovers of money, ridicule his claim that devotion to riches sets one in idolatrous opposition to God. It sets one in idolatrous opposition to God. So Jesus' critics recognize the statement as a challenge to the prevailing understanding of prosperity and poverty in terms of divine reward and retribution. So Jesus has no argument with the law per se, but rather with the interpretations of it that perpetuate exploitative practices and fail to respond to the misery of the masses. Now in that day, there was no shortage of the stratified limited goods society in which peasants lived continually on the brink of disaster at the mercy of forces that were powerless beyond their control. And so considering all the commodities to kind of be in short supply, they subscribed to what's called the subsistence ethic. It was the belief that they were entitled to draw on the collective resources of the community. So survival in that day often depended on this generalized reciprocity, this selfless giving motivated by human need without expectation of return. So, whether a family member or those of the means, or those of means who understood the responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility towards those less privileged. So, these wealthy patrons um, basically provided a social safety net of sorts. But the elites who kind of took advantage of their powers and ignored their moral obligations were really complicit in creating a society in which the lives of the de- destitute whereas one author put it, nasty, brutish, and short. Now Moses and the prophets, they repeatedly warned of impending judgment for those who failed to take responsibility for the marginalized people of society. And the opening scene of our parable powerfully depicts the stark contrast between the living conditions of the haves and the have-nots. And we read in verse 19, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So if clothes make the man, this man has it made. Now, blue and purple cloth, they were produced from a dye that was actually um, secreted by sea snails. And it was the most valuable cloth in the ancient world. It was the enviable insignia of the ruling caste. So for example, a rabbinic uh, prayer shawl needed to have at least one blue thread in its ritual fringe. You can read about that in Numbers 15. But the rich man, he has an entire garment made of this costly stuff. And this robe then covers the undergarment of a very costly, high-quality linen, the finest of which was produced just south of Galilee. So kind of in, this, in the Greek, it describes his garments as sumptuous and resplendent. And most remarkable, they were not reserved for special occasions. The rich man's lavish clothes were actually his everyday apparel. So it'd be like today, uh, going around uh, wearing um, the Italian-made uh, Keton K50 suit. And I looked it up, it runs about $50,000 dollars. You know, you're just wearing that out, and people would be like, oh, wow, what, what are you doing out, going out today? And he'd be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I'm just running out to Timmy's for some Timbits. It was this lavishness that he just did every single day. And what's interesting, the rich man, he's not depicted as some shark, you know, corrupt and decadent. He's just as simply adhering to the social norm, norms of Roman aristocracy, living according to his means. The rich man really is like the Pharisee in chapter 17. He's a caricature. He's too rich even to be recognized outside any system of social responsibility. Now, Roman readers would have expected the rich man to aid the poor as part of their role in this patronage system. And Jewish readers would have expected such patronage given that they were also part of the Roman world. But they also would have condemned the man for failing to provide support because support for the marginalized is marginalized is commanded in the Torah, the law we read in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. I therefore command you open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. So we see the ancient world was predominantly a two class world, patrician, And plebeian, free and slave, rich and poor. And the latter class, the poor and the slave, being numerically larger than the first. And really, this parable is reflecting that world. And that's what Jesus always would do with stories. He's taking things from that world to bring about something that he wants to talk about. And so in verse 20, we read this And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Covered with sores. Now, it's important to note in, in the Greek, the NASB probably uh, translate this more accurately. It, it probably should say, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. So the focus is not on the location, this person at the gate. It's on the man's economic condition. Some rich person is in direct contrast with some poor person. And this poor person, he's, he's not a beggar, as some translations identify him. He is poor. And the Greek word for poor is actually used 34 times in the New Testament, where it describes people in states of poverty, and most of whom do not beg. So, for example, in Luke chapter 21, the poor widow who puts her two coins in the temple treasury, she begs from no one. A beggar actively begs. That's his job. Lazarus neither sits nor begs. He is in worse shape than a beggar. So like the rich man at the other extreme, he is a figure so poor that we can't even identify with him. We are neither like the rich man nor like Lazarus. And before we know of of Lazarus' circumstances beyond really this harsh reality of his poverty, we learn his name. Now, in parables, characters are rarely named. And in the Gospels, Lazarus and his father Abraham are the only named figures in any of the parables. And now in Hebrew, Lazarus would be Eleazar, which means God helps. So the irony here is apparent. The only help Lazarus will get will come from God. Since the rich man is not doing what God had commanded Now, Jesus, being a great storyteller and Aramaic speaker that he was, would have known the nuances of the name. And in this parable, there's at least three. First, the rich man knows Lazarus by name. And that knowledge condemns him. The man at his gate was not a stranger. The rich man cannot plead ignorance. Second, the name translated God helps raises the question of the presence of the divine. For our Lazarus, the only way that God will help him is if those who claim to be followers of God actually follow the law, doing their share, helping the needy in their land. And third, the name shows that the storyteller attends to this man. The storyteller also knows his name. And the name forces us to notice the man by the gate. He is not just some guy. He is Lazarus. And so we see Lazarus is lying at the gate, ulcerous, malnutritioned, a pitiful contrast to the lavish man or the lavish rich man. Lazarus says not a word. He's just longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Verse 22, the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, it might be expected or hoped that the inequities and injustices related between these two men would be made right in this life. They are not. Lazarus and the rich man both die in the same condition in which they lived. On the one hand, angels escort the soul of Lazarus to God and he's immediately received into eternal blessedness, symbolized by Abraham's bosom and is joined to the elite company of Moses himself. And so this reference to Lazarus being carried to Abraham's bosom um, in our, uh, this verse, it doesn't have the term bosom. It's actually the Greek word colopsis or kolopos. It means breast or chest. And in the NIV, um, they translate it Abraham's side. They kind of sanitize it a little bit. But in essence, what it's describing is Lazarus is being gathered into the arms of Abraham with this kind of picture of tender affection of a mother nursing a child. And John, the fourth evangelist, he actually uses the same expression to describe the intimacy between Jesus and the father in John 1 and of the beloved disciple in Jesus at the Last Supper in John 13, which is pretty cool. But the callous resentment of Lazarus at the rich man's gate has now been radically reversed in eternity. Lazarus has died and has been received in eternal comfort And blessedness. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, the statement can be taken in two ways. On the one hand, refusal of burial of a corpse in Judaism signified that in the eyes of the living, the deceased deserved no honor, but rather God's judgment. So, the proper burial of the rich man assures the readers of his honorable discharge in the eyes of the community in which he lived. However, on the other hand, and in contrast to the fate of Lazarus, the report of the rich man's burial is kind of abrupt and callous. There's no other explanation. But what it does say is that there's a great exchange has now occurred. So the sumptuousness enjoyed by the rich man in life is now enjoyed by Lazarus in eternity. And the misery that Lazarus suffered in life is the fate of the rich man in eternity. And so we see the rich man does not join Lazarus on, Abraham, on Father Abraham's lap, but he awakes in Hades from where he sees Abraham and pleads for him to send Lazarus to quench his thirst, if only with a drop of water. Now, Second Temple Judaism believed that the blessed and damned were actually able to view one another from their respective outposts and that their views increased both the joy Of the one and the torment of the other. And this comes from uh, 4th Ezra. It's one of the Apocrypha books, if you want to read about it in chapter 7. So looking up in agony, the rich man sees Lazarus blessed in the company of Abraham, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So the rich man's burning appeal to Father Abraham and to his mercy are tragically incompatible for his life of luxury really attended to neither. The rich man knows Abraham's name and Abraham's role as he knew the name and circumstances of the man in anguish by his gates. Knowledge without action will count for nothing. Knowledge without action will count for nothing. He refused to recognize on earth... That Lazarus, too, was a child of Abraham and so should have been treated as welcome member of the family. He had the resources. He had the opportunity. He had the commandments of the Torah. He did nothing. And he still does nothing. Instead, he continues to think of Lazarus as nothing more than a servant or a dog. Who is to fetch something for his master. He fails to recognize the irony of his request. I mean, Lazarus would have been happy with a crumb from his table. The rich man wants even less, a drop of water. He will receive exactly what he gave Lazarus. But now the circumstances are different. So Abraham now speaks. Child, remember. And his response in this is really interesting. It's, it's really free of resentment and retribution. In fact, he actually addresses this rich man very tenderly. And this word, word child that he uses, it's the same name in which the father addressed the older son in the parable of the lost son in Luke 15. The rich man has made his choices. Abraham cannot change their consequences. In Jesus' parable... There is a line of cause and effect between this world and the world to come that can actually be remembered. There is no evidence the rich man gave any thought to the future. But now, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, who is required by the ghost of Christmas past to revisit his early life, the rich man is required to remember his past and realize that it determines his present state. And like many of Luke's teachings, really in the central section of the gospel, the decisive eschatological issue or that end time issue is not wickedness, but neglect. If you remember at Luke 14, at the great banquet, it was neglect of an invitation. And here it is neglect of a man in need whom the rich man could have helped. And that's why in verse 25, Abraham says, child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things but now he is comforted here and you are in agony and a great chasm says Abraham has been set in place between Lazarus and the rich man that cannot be crossed and this chasm is fixed it's it's unbridgeable it separates the righteous from the unrighteous And the point is as inescapable as the chasm. Judgment is irrevocable with no suggestion of purgatory. Even across the chasm, the rich man continues his appeal. Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to warn my five brothers so that they will also not come into this place of torment. The rich man is not the only one separated from this blessedness that Lazarus is experiencing. His family is in equal danger. So Lazarus, whom he still imagines as his servant, should be sent to warn his brothers. So the plea for his brothers kind of at first seems less selfish than his earlier pleas. But the plea is really not free from self-justification. What it suggests is that in, in life, the rich man did not have adequate opportunity to know and do what he needed to do. He is saying, oh, if only God would have warned me, I would have escaped this place of torment. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. So Abraham's point is, that God has revealed his call for compassion in his word already. There is no need to repeat what God has already made extremely clear. The sacred scriptures of Israel was full of ethical calls to show compassion to the needing. I mean, just look at this list in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah, Malachi. In effect... The message had already been given repeatedly from above, how one should respond to their neighbor in need. And at this, the rich man snaps in exasperation. No, the law and the prophets' religion is not enough. An inescapable sign is required. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, the request to talk with the dead, especially in dreams, was not really an infrequent theme in rabbinic literature to which this rich man now appeals. But through this storm of protest, Father Abraham maintains a steady course. If they do not listen, To Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So, this final appeal to familial relationship, whether read as comic or tragic or pathetic, it doesn't succeed. The rich man, dead himself, still thinks of Lazarus as an available servant. He has not repented from his failure. To aid Lazarus. He has not recognized his sin, nor does he find the Torah self evidently compelling. And that's why Abraham refuses his request. The brothers, like the rich man, know what they should have done. And once they are dead, they will not get a second chance. There is no post mortem do over. Now, the suspicion that a Jewish audience would have felt that the rich man's punishment was unjust since he was really given no warning of the critical importance of passing through the gate of judgment is overstated because the warning occurs again and again and again in the law and the prophets. And the fact is repeated twice by Abraham. He knows that the brothers can listen. The warning has already been given because the concern for almsgiving was part of the culture. So was love of neighbor. The problem is not the message. The problem is that people don't listen. Some people we learn will never change. They condemn themselves to eternal punishment, even as their actions condemn others to poverty. If they they think they can survive on family connections to Abraham, to their brothers, they're wrong. If they think their power will last past their death, they are wrong again. As verses 30 and 31 declare, and these concluding verses are really key to the parable, one's future state depends on repentance. Repentance is the expected response to Jesus's call to discipleship. I mean, the shrewd manager who we... If you go back to the first part of chapter 16, he used wealth to gain eternal friendships. But this rich man fails to use his wealth to help a poor man at his gate, and as a result, has no eternal friend to advocate for him. The rich man complains rather than repents to Father Abraham. And his expectation of Lazarus to serve him first with water and then with an errand to his brothers maintains his entitled worldview. His plea for his brothers is a veiled rejection of the will of God. Moses and the prophets are not enough. His brothers need a miraculous wonder to change. And so he continues, his outlook continues to remain wholly practical. He is only concerned with avoidance of this place of torment rather than as John the Baptist teaches, bearing fruit worthy of repentance. And so what does he want? What does he want from religion? What does he want for himself and his five brothers? Well, it's not a religion that changes his actions. He wants a religion that spares him from the consequences of his actions. Remember, that was the question that we started with that I wanted you to ponder on. That's what this man wants. He doesn't want a religion that changes his actions. He wants a religion that will spare him from the consequences of his actions. And now what Abraham refuses to permit for the rich man's brothers, the parable does literally for the parable's readers. For in this exchange, we as the readers hear from beyond the grave, a warning, even the painful cry of an eternally judged man. And the cry is the plea that God desires compassion from and for those he has created. God desires compassion for and from those he has created. Because this is how we show love to our neighbor. And the irony is that what is not permitted in the story The story does, in fact, provide. Now, Jesus told parables because they serve as keys that can unlock the mysteries we face by helping us ask the right questions. You know, how do we live in community? How do we determine what ultimately matters in life? And how do we live the life that God wants us to live in this world? They are Jesus' way of teaching, and they are remembered to this day because they continue to provoke, to challenge, and inspire. And Jesus knew that the best teaching concerning how to live and to live abundantly comes not from kind of spoon-fed data or an answer sheet. Instead, it comes from the narratives that remind us what we already know, but we are resistant to recall. It comes from stories that prompt us to draw our own conclusions. And at the same time, it forces us to realize that our answers well may be unexpected or leaps of faith or traps. In the parables, if we take them seriously, not as answers, but as invitations, they can continue to inform our lives, even as our lives continue to open up to the parables to new readings. So Jesus knew that the teaching, the best teaching came from stories with memorable characters who are both familiar and strange, who really play upon our stereotypes, even as they confront them. And so he, pre- he, he sought to prepare his people for the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. And to prepare his people for that inbreaking, he also asked them to prioritor- prioritize what really matters. And what does not? What is the message for those who are neither extravagantly rich or desperately poor? I mean, most of us probably fall somewhere in between. Where does that dividing line fall that creates the unbridgeable chasm? And additionally, while there is something satisfying for those who are poor to contemplate a selfish rich man being eternally punished in the hereafter... How could one sibling rejoice in the damnation of another when all are sisters and brothers, children of the same father? I mean, how would the ones who, in the eternal embrace of Father Abraham, be able to enjoy the rich fare at the heavenly banquet while others are in perpetual torment? And when the rich man pleads with Father Abraham, would a soft-hearted Lazarus add his voice to intercede? Now, while the parable presents what appears to be a definitive conclusion for Lazarus and the rich man, it opens for its hearers the possibility of a different ending depending on the choices we make in the here and now. So imagine, imagine if we as followers of Jesus released ourselves to one another, making ourselves responsible for and accountable to one another. Imagine if as followers of Jesus, we became the bridge between uneven wealth and resources, uneven hope, uneven life. I mean, what would the world begin to look like? Maybe that's why Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry in Mark 1, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So however one understands Luke's intent, the challenge is very clear to disciples both then and now. Repentance is the expected response to Jesus' call to discipleship. Let those who have eyes see and those who have ears hear. As we come now to a time of of confession, as we've been formed by God's word, even in this moment, let's pray together. We need to confess God of Abraham and Lazarus. How often we are not content with the simple gifts and lives you offer. We're tempted by everything. We can become insensitive to those who have nothing. Encouraged by the world to accumulate more. We miss the chance to gather your goodness and godliness. Chasing after all which has no value. We may not even have the energy to pursue the faith and the love and the gentleness that you actually have for us. And so forgive us God. God of reversals, you have sent the one who speaks the words that we need to listen to in order to have life and have life abundantly. So help us to remember how you have redeemed us. And in remembering, may we make that good confession that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior now and forever. So what I want to do is just, Provide some space just for silent confession. As you've heard these words today, what is God saying to you? Friends, this is the the good news that comes from God. I will hear your prayers. I will answer with hope and peace. I will deliver you from your sins. God has covered us with grace. And under God's hope, we will find shelter. Thanks be to God. Amen. And the wonderful thing is, is that we find that shelter of grace and hope here in this meal. And friends, this is the good news. This is the good news that the body of Christ was broken for you and for me. The blood of Christ was poured out for you and for me for the forgiveness of sin. So we come to this meal knowing that this is where we receive God's grace and forgiveness and hope and sustaining power to live out this kingdom life that he's inviting us to be a part of. As Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room. And he took that bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And every time you do, do this in remembrance of me. After his supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Every time you drink, remember me. And continue to do this meal until I return as a way to proclaim who I am and what I've come to do. And so if you have your, your juice and your cracker, you can pull out the bread and let me pray. as we come to this meal now. We, we ask that you would feed us uh, in this meal, that you would sustain us, that you would provide hope and shelter and grace uh, and cause us to remember the suffering in which you went through because you loved the people of this world and you're calling us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So Father, feed us now in this meal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, this is the body of Christ which is broken for you. Take and receive from him. And with the cup, Friends, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you, Receive from him. We're so glad that you were able to join us um, for this online liturgy. If you're looking for ways to get connected here at Southview, please do reach out to us. Go to our website, southviewchurch.com or uh, call our church and ask to talk with one of our pastors. We'd love to help you take whatever step you are in your faith journey, uh, deeper in what it means to follow Jesus and to love your neighbor in this world. And so as you go into this week, may our eyes be opened to those who lie at our gates. With the love of Christ within us, may we see the hungry and the hurting, the abused and the forgotten, the voiceless and the marginalized. And may we seek to share the blessings we have been given. And so may we all go out and live the kingdom in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.